You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. That's where we'll be first. And again, we'll have some handouts for you in just a moment. Because you really need the handout tonight. Because there's some charts and graphs and stuff on there. So we really need to, need to get you those. Um, you're going to be glad you came to church tonight. Because by the time we are through, every one of your end times questions will be answered. We're going to solve it all tonight. We're going to settle it all. And uh, we'll know what every horn on every dragon's head means when we're done, all right? But we're going to have a a good time and uh, talk about the doctrine of last things. Uh, We have been uh, working our way through the great doctrines of the faith, those, those, those beliefs that we stand on and believe in and cling uh, to. We've talked about the doctrine of revelation, how God has revealed himself to us. We've talked about the doctrine of God, the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Trinity, just uh, doctrine of the church. And the last one we will cover, and we may not finish tonight, we'll see how that goes, but we're going to study the doctrine of last things. Uh, in theology proper, this is called the study of eschatology. Uh, eschatology means study of last things. That's the, it comes from eschatos, Greek word. And so we're talking about tonight where things are headed, okay? And what the Bible tells us and how we're to understand those realities. Well, let me just pause and pray so we can ask God's help because we're going we're gonna to tread in some deep water tonight. So we're going to ask God just for, for help and clarity and. Uh, strength. Father, we're grateful for your grace and your mercy and your love, and we're grateful, Lord, for your presence in this place, grateful for your people. Lord, I'm grateful for those that are in this room tonight and their families, and pray, God, that you would bless us um, as we study your word, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would inspire us, that you would inform us, and, and that we would leave uh, tonight more in love with Jesus uh, than we were when we walked in. And that we would leave, uh, Lord, more on mission with Jesus than we were when we walked in. For that is the purpose of you revealing last things to us. That we would come to glorify you all the more and come to uh, a place of urgency when it comes to the mission you have given us. So God, would you uh, allow that to take place in our hearts tonight, in our minds, and in our church family. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible, uh, okay, raise your hand if you need a sheet, because Miss Nancy's coming around. So raise your hand if you've got one over there, one right there, one on this side, one over here. Miss Nancy is coming around, and she will um, get you that sheet. Uh, the Bible gives us a lot of information about the end times. A lot of it is not crystal clear, because there's a mixture of, of direct statements and symbolism and, and all of these different aspects that tie into the Bible's teaching on last things. And because there are a lot of different 
um, aspects to it. There are a lot of different approaches people have to their belief on the end times. But regardless of one's belief on the end times, there are some broad brushstrokes that are painted throughout Scripture that, that help us understand the kind of the big picture. Okay, now there's there's debate about how the big picture or the big events kind of fit together. But I think the Bible is very clear that there are some big events coming that we need to be aware of and understand. And so what I've done tonight is I've given you five major end times events. We're not going to get down in the, in the nitty-gritty details with a lot of this, but we're going to just kind of introduce these five major end times events. And this might spur you on to further study or further conversation. But I think we need to be able to understand uh, the, the import of these major events. The first one is the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. You can turn to, again, Matthew chapter 24, and I'm going to show you what Jesus said about this. In my Bible study, we've been studying uh, Matthew 24 on Sunday mornings and, and enjoying that study. But in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, uh, one of Jesus' last sermons before he would be arrested um, betrayed and arrested, um, setting in motion the events that would lead to his crucifixion. In this sermon, the Olivet Discourse, because it was given on the Mount of Olives, Jesus basically says there are coming some really bad times for Jerusalem. In fact, he tells his disciples, you see this great temple, the huge stone stacked one on top of another, there's coming an event so cataclysmic that there won't be one stone left on another. There will be a complete dismantling of the temple. And the disciples were, were wowed by this information. And Hey, Donna. I just saw Donna back there. Donna's been out with her, with her mom. Good to see you back. Um, but uh, they're so wowed by this information of the destruction of the temple that they're thinking, well, when's that going to happen? And, and that must mean, if that's happening, it must mean the end times are here. So the rest of the sermon is Jesus saying, this is going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean the end times are here. And he helps them to understand how that all plays out. And so we know, looking through the lens of history, that the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 by the Romans. But Jesus begins to talk about some things beyond that. The, the destruction of the temple foreshadowed how bad things were going to get. But Jesus shares some, some coming events, coming in the future that we need to be aware of, and one of those is the Great Tribulation. Now, leading up to his teaching on the Great Tribulation, Jesus is very clear. He's saying as we get closer and closer to that time, there are going to be some, some signs. There are going to be some indicators. He even calls them birth pains to, to help us understand, to kind of wake us up to the fact that we are getting closer to the end times. He talks about things like wars and rumors of wars. Anybody, is that anything, is that happening in today's time, wars and rumors of wars? Uh, false teachers, false uh, prophets, natural disasters, and, and things of that nature. And as we see those things occurring, even in an increasing way, it ought to be kind of a, 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 um, a warning to us. Hey, we're getting closer. We need to be ready. We need to be ready for what is coming. So as he, as he teaches this, he gets into uh, talking about the abomination of desolation, which I don't have time to go into tonight, but that's part of what happens in the Great Tribulation. But look what Jesus says, um, starting there in verse 15. 
So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You might want to write in your margin there 2 Thessalonians 2 when it speaks of the Antichrist figure who will come to the temple which will be rebuilt in the future and claim to be God and demand worship. Um, so that, I believe that's what he's talking about, the abomination of desolation, um, which was foreshadowed by another abomination of desolation, uh, which happened when the Romans overthrew the temple in A.D. 70, which really was foreshadowed by another abomination of desolation way back in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek general who sacrificed a pig in the temple. And so all of those abominations of de- desolations, the, the two earlier ones pointed to the final one of the Antichrist. He says, Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. Uh, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, they're you know, vulnerable and it will be very difficult. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation. Notice that phrase, great tribulation. Such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So he's talking about some events here that eclipse anything we've experienced so far in human history. All right, He's not talking about just wars or rumors of wars or natural disasters. This, this, is, this is even a, a degree beyond those birth pangs. He says, If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Um, and so Jesus here is saying there's coming a, a time of, of great trail, uh, trial and tribulation. And if you look there in your notes, the great tribulation will be a time of immense distress that occurs during a seven-year period. So as we kind of put the pieces together, we look in the book of Revelation, we see that this is a seven-year period uh, And in that seven-year period, these cataclysmic events will occur. And Revelation uses a lot of imagery to speak of how bad it's going to be. We see, you know, seven trumpets being blown with accompanying disasters. Uh, We see uh, seven plagues released. We see seven bowls of God's wrath poured out. And there's a lot of information in Revelation about how bad this tribulation period will be. It's roughly Revelation chapter 8 through chapter 18. That entire middle section of Revelation is about how bad the Great Tribulation is going to be. So a time of immense distress is coming, which I know causes you to have a lot of questions. So we'll, Just hang with me. We'll, we'll get to some of that because I need to talk to you about the next major end times event, and it is the return of Christ. The return of Christ. Now back in Matthew 24, verse 29... Jesus says something very interesting. He says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Jesus says here, in, in, in terms of timeline, immediately after, what? After the tribulation, after these cataclysmic events, this time of great distress, 
there's going to be some, 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 some things happening in the cosmos. The, you know, the sun will be dark and moon will not give us light. I mean, some pretty incredible things are going to be happening. And that will be an indicator that Jesus Christ is coming on the clouds and everyone will see him. This is called the second coming of Christ, the, the return of Christ. Now, the return of Christ, and this is in your notes, will involve a couple of things. It will involve, first of all, the resurrection and the rapture. So if you read over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible uses some very uh, similar terminology about, about Jesus returning. And the context of 1 Thessalonians is, is pretty interesting. Uh, when Paul went into to Thessalonica and preached the gospel, he said... This is, you know, this is what it means to believe in Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, how you live for Jesus, how you obey Jesus, and realize that one day Jesus is going to come back. And so word began to spread over time after Paul left that Jesus Christ uh, could come back at any moment, and so everybody could just kind of quit working because you know, he could come back the next day, so why go to your job and work? And that's if you read Thessalonians, he he finally says, if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat either. You got You don't stop working, right? Um, but but they were they were anticipating the return of Christ, and they began to be distressed because the the, the Christians in Thessalonica started to have loved ones die, and they started to ask the question. Well, Paul said Jesus is coming back. He hadn't come back yet. So what about those that have died? And, and Paul answers that in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says those that have died are asleep in Jesus. I love that phrase. They're asleep in Jesus. And he explains what's going to happen. And he says Christ's going to come, sound a trumpet, voice of archangel. And the dead in Christ, those who, who are Christians who have passed away, their bodies will be raised. There will be a resurrection, a glorified body. We talked about that a little bit uh, last week, maybe the week before that. A couple weeks ago. And, and, and those bodies be raised, brand new glorified bodies. And it says, we who are alive, the Christians who are on the earth who have not died yet, will be caught up with him in the air. Now that word caught up is the Greek word raptizo. It's where we get the word rapture from. So when Jesus returns, there's going to be a resurrection of, of those who have died in Christ. Brand new glorified bodies. And those who are alive will be raptured, be caught up in the air. And the Bible says those who have been resurrected, those who are being raptured, We'll meet with Jesus together. There'll be a great reunion in the sky. That is the return of Christ. And I want to talk to you a little bit about rapture and resurrection in a minute, but just kind of hold that thought. We're going to get to some of your questions because I know you have right now. I can't tell you where you're looking at me. Let me tell you one more thing about the return of Christ. The return of Christ will bring about victory over God's enemies. So if you read Revelation chapter 19, you know Jesus comes back as a warrior. He's on a white horse. Uh, King of kings, Lord of lords, it says, on his thigh. There's a sword coming out of his mouth, which means he will, he will simply speak and win the victory over the armies that have amassed against him, the ungodly that have amassed against Jesus and his followers. And Jesus is going to come back and defeat the ungodly and set everything right. Justice will come with Jesus when he returns. And so the return of Christ will bring about victory over God's enemies. You read about that in Revelation Chapter 19. And, and the interesting thing about Revelation 19 is how different the second coming is than the first. So, the first coming, Jesus is you know, born to an obscure um, carpenter. Uh, you know, his earthly father was Joseph, born to a, a teenage Jewish girl uh, named uh, Mary. Um, grew up in kind of out of the way place, Nazareth, kind of out in the sticks. That's what the folks in Jerusalem thought they, were, you know, that was kind of out in the sticks. And 
And uh, he, he came in, in you know, he, when he was born, he was not born in a palace. He was laid in a manger, right, wrapped in swaddling cloths. And, and, and we know that the, the, the first advent, the first coming of Christ was, was, was humble, uh, uh, filled with humility. The second coming will be Jesus the warrior, where he comes to set everything right. So that is the return of Christ. Now, there's a lot of discussion, probably most of the end times discussion, centers around, well, how's this all going to play out? Resurrection, rapture, when exactly is it going to happen? Does it happen separately? Does it happen at the same time? And, and here's what I want you to understand tonight. This is very, very important. What you believe about the return of Christ, how it all happens, is directly tied in to your view on the millennium. Okay? So I want to explain that to you. And what I want to do is I want to talk, that's number three, by the way, the millennium. I want to talk to you about the millennium because what you believe about the millennium is going to, is going to determine what you believe about the return of Christ and the rapture and the resurrection and when all of that occurs. Does that make sense? So you need to understand under the umbrella of, of Orthodox Christianity, there are different views about the millennium. Okay? Different views. And there are godly, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, gospel-preaching scholars that come to different conclusions on this. So this is not, what you believe about your end times theology is, is not, uh, it doesn't determine whether you go to heaven or not. Okay, Jesus determines whether you go to heaven or not. Whether you know him as your personal Lord and Savior. That's the gospel. These are in-house Christian discussions we're trying to grow in our understanding and our um, knowledge. But, but here's the deal. Growing up, I was taught one of these views and taught it very passionately and taught it very frequently. And I just believe, because I didn't know any better, I believe that, well, if you didn't believe that, then you just weren't going to heaven. Like, there must be something wrong with you if you don't believe this view of the end times. Now, as I've grown and learned and studied and, and read, I've learned that there are different views out there when it comes to end times theology. And you need to understand that th this is not an issue of, of fellowship. People can have, in this room, three different views, and we can all be on the same team, right? Um, and, and so I want you to understand that. But let me, let me explain to you a little bit more about what I mean. Over in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, let's turn there. Turn to Revelation 20. Be good to read it. Revelation 20, verse 1. Remember, 8 through 18 uh, is the, the tribulation in the book of Revelation, how bad it's going to be. Chapter 19, Jesus comes back to overthrow all evil and the ungodly that have amassed against him. Then we get to chapter 20. John is seeing this vision unfold. The apostle John, he says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. So the, the, the dragon here is named. He's talking about Satan, the great enemy of God and his people. And he bound him for what? What's the word there? A thousand years. That's what the word millennium means. A thousand years. So when you hear people talk about the millennium, you read about the millennium, they're talking about this a thousand years mentioned here in Revelation chapter 20. It says, He bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. That 
little sentence there has caused a lot of discussion through the years. People are like, what in the world's happening there? Then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with him for a thousand years. So three times in this passage we see the reference to a thousand years. So if you look there in your notes, there are different interpretations of how the end times events will unfold. And the different interpretations are related to one's view of the millennium. Okay? So let me give you the different views, and you'll begin to understand how this all kind of works, I think. The first view is probably the oldest view that we have in terms of um, historical theology, Christian history. And it is called historical or classical premillennialism. Okay? Historical, classical, premillennialism. And I have these charts in my Bible study program. I was able to, to uh, import them in so you could kind of see them. They're very helpful um, little charts. But basically, the, the, the view, historical classical premillennialism, it goes all the way back to Irenaeus, who, was, who, was, who lived 2nd century after the time of Christ. Irenaeus of Lyon, some other early church fathers held to this view. But if you look there in the, the, the chart, you have the church age, which we're living in now, and the tribulation. And after the tribulation, uh, there is the return of Christ. And notice there, the catching up of believers to be with Christ, uh, that what we call the rapture. And uh, they come to be with Christ, and Christ comes back with the believers. Uh, also, those who have been resurrected, those who have been dead in Christ, will be caught up with Christ at that time. So he, here's the big thing about this view. This view teaches that after the tribulation... Jesus Christ will return, and there will be a rapture and a resurrection that happen at that moment. Okay? That's important. So the rapture and res resurrection happen simultaneously with the return of Christ after the tribulation. Okay? Then the rest of the events unfold. Then you have the millennium. Okay? Um, the the thousand years it mentions here uh, where Satan is bound, and, and Isaiah 11 indicates there will be great peace. A lion will lay down with the lamb, right, uh, during that time. Uh, and then after the millennium, if you look there in the chart, there will be a resurrection of unbelievers, uh, uh, final judgment, uh, and then the eternal state. So that's classical premillennialism. The, the second one is pre-tribulation premillennialism. Pre-tribulation premillennialism. This is the view I grew up with, and probably most of you did too. Uh, this view was really popularized by a... Uh, scholar uh, named J.N. Darby. J.N. Darby directly uh, impacted uh, uh, a Bible teacher named C.N. Schofield, and he uh, wrote the notes for the Schofield Bible. Anybody grow up with a Schofield Bible? I mean, it was the Bible when I was growing up. Like, everybody got a Schofield Bible in the church. And the Schofield Bible was the Bible with, with C.N. Schofield's notes. And he was influenced by Darby and, and this view, pre-trib, uh, premillennialism, which is a part of dispensational theology, which is another conversation for another day. Um, that that uh, was really uh, popularized by the Schofield Bible. 
And it became kind of the prevailing end times theology in churches. And again, that's what I heard growing up. And uh, again, I thought it was the only one out there. And I thought if you didn't believe it, then you were just, you know, a heretic, right? Um, but, but here's the difference between pre-trib premillennialism and historical premillennialism or classical premillennialism. Pre-trib premillennialism breaks the return of Christ into two different parts. This view says that before the tribulation starts, Jesus Christ will come back and raise the dead Christians from the grave and rapture the saints who are alive and take them back to heaven. And then after the tribulation, he'll come back with all of those saints to overthrow evil and set up the millennial kingdom. So it divides the return of Christ into two different um, parts, right? The first, the first fa- phases. The first phase of the return of Christ is... The, the rapture, resurrection, second phase is what, what, what most would call the second coming where he comes as a warrior to overthrow evil at the end of the tribulation. So again, uh, two phases on either side of the tribulation. That is the one I grew up with, um, pre-trib, premillennialism. A couple more views, just so you're aware if you're reading more about this. Uh, the next one there is amillennialism. The, the A there negates the word millennial, so amillennialism means there is no... People that hold to amillennialism believe that the 1,000-year millennial reign is not literal. It's, it's symbolic. So they believe there is no 1,000-year uh, reign. They believe the, the, the imagery about the 1,000-year reign is... Uh, symbolic. Those that hold to amillennialism believe the Old Testament prophecies and Revelation's uh, visions are to be understood as symbolizing the blessings and trials of the New Testament church. So, so those who are amillennial would say, we're living in the, we're living in the imagery of the, of the millennium right now in, in the church age. And we experience the hardships that are mentioned in the, you know, through the uh, imagery of the tribulation. We experience some blessing as the gospel goes forth, but there is no 1,000 year literal reign of Christ on the earth. They just believe we live in the church age, and when it's time, Jesus comes back, resurrection, rapture, judgment, all happens at one time, and then the new heavens, new earth. So it's a very simplistic um, uh, view, uh, but it is, it is all based upon the fact that the, the millennium is is symbolic imagery, not a literal 1,000 years. Everybody got that? That's a, that's a prevalent view out there. Um, Augustine, the church father Augustine, was one of the first ones that uh, really uh, taught uh, this view. And then the last one is post-millennialism, which is kind of getting a little bit more popular these days. It's kind of interesting. Um, this view uh, believes there are that the thousand years are a future time still to come, and they believe the thousand years um, will be a wonderful golden age in which the gospel will triumph to the degree that the world's societies, cultures, and institutions will be transformed. So here's what they believe. They believe as the church does its thing and preaches the gospel, that eventually the world will be transformed and it will be a golden age for humanity. Okay, And they believe that will happen before the return of Christ. Because you look there in that in that um, in in your chart there, the millennium where where the gospel is transforming everything happens. You know we could be living in that now according to their view, but then Christ returns and then we step into the eternal uh, state, eternal heaven, eternal um, hell. And so that view that view teaches 
that things are going to get better and better and better before Christ returns, which is really hard for me to wrap my mind around. Um, I, I, I just, I just, I think we're not going to see justice on this earth uh, until Christ comes back and sets everything right. The gospel is victorious. We're going to see people saved. The kingdom will expand. People are going to give their lives to him. So there will be victory. The church will see. In fact, the Bible says every people group will hear the gospel, Matthew 24. And so there is the triumph of the gospel. But I do not see a widespread golden age of humanity apart from the return of Christ. That's just my, my view on that. But that is a, a prevalent view. So most people in this room would probably identify as uh, pre-trib, pre-millennial, or uh, maybe historic pre-millennial. Just tell you what I believe, um, because I know that's what you want me to say. Uh, I believe the millennium is a literal 1,000 years. And that's why I took you to Revelation 20, because there seems to be such an emphasis on saying 1,000 years. Three times. 1,000 years. 1,000 years. 1,000 years. And it's like very, very uh, specific there. And I believe it is a literal time. And I believe other scriptures give us some information about the millennium to help us understand what it's going to be like. Uh, Satan will be bound, of course, so he won't be doing uh, his evil deeds. And the Bible says Jesus will be reigning and ruling. And we know his wisdom and his power to, to rule and reign. And the Bible says things like lions will lay down with lambs and kids will handle serpents. And it will be a time of, of great peace um, and, and a time where Jesus uh, rule. So I believe in a literal 1,000-year uh, millennium. Now, when it comes to pre-trib or historic premillennialism, so I'm, I'm premillennial. Um, it depends on when you ask me. <laughs> in other words, I've 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 changed and flip-flopped and you know believed one and kind of. Uh, gone to another. I'll tell you my view, and, and I'm not telling you this because I want to argue with you tonight, or I want you to send me emails this week. Um, so actually, if you want to email me this week, my email address is joshmanning at fbc. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, just kidding. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this to argue because I'm still learning, and we're all, we're all, still, um, all still learning. Um, as I've grown to my understanding, okay, I've, I find it hard to see a difference between the First Thessalonians 4, where the resurrection rapture happens, and the Matthew 24, return of Christ after the tribulation. So, so if, you, if you made me tell you what I believed, I would say I'm probably historic premillennial, that after the tribulation period, Jesus comes back, that's when the resurrection happens, that's when the rapture happens, and that's when Jesus Christ overthrows his enemies and ushers in the millennial reign. So that would mean that, that I don't hold to a pre-tribulation secret rapture. So, uh, you know, again, I grew up with movies and books, and the Left Behind series was very popular, and, you know, that taught that, you know, so, you know, Charles is a believer and I'm not, and all of a sudden Charles has disappeared. And I'm sitting here going, what happened? You know, where did Charles go, right? And, and you know, uh, that, that view that this secret rapture happens. One of, the, one of the scriptures that's used to teach of the secret rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, turn there with me, I want to show you this. 1 Thessalonians 4. And 
He says in verse 16, to kind of fast forward, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now remember what we read in Matthew 24. When Jesus comes back in Matthew 24 after tribulation, trumpet, angels, right? Right here, what's it say? Cry of command, voice of the archangel, sound of the trumpet of God. To me, those don't sound like two separate events. Those sound like the same event. And, and it doesn't sound secret either. Like, all of a sudden, Charles disappears. I'm thinking, what happened? This sounds like there's trumpets and there's an archangel crying out and some very, some very you know, um, dramatic things happening. And I actually heard a Bible teacher who I greatly respect. I won't say his name, but he's a great Bible teacher. He's, he, he's, on book, he's written books. He's on TV. Uh, very solid. Uh, I love listening to him. But he was explaining how this passage refers to a secret rapture and he mentioned the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and he said that only Christians will hear that. Which makes it fit into the system, but I don't see that in the Bible. There's just no verse that says only Christians will hear that. Um, and so the more I've studied, the more, the more I've you know, kind of come to some understanding. Uh, you know, again, if you made me write down what I believe, I would be uh, historic pre-mill, but I'm still learning, and I'm still growing, and I'm still studying, and I'm still wanting to you know, learn more. So uh, that, that's probably where I would be. It, that raises all kinds of questions. Like we've been studying this, see, man, we've been studying this in our Bible study class, and you know, it's, the implication is that Christians will go through the tribulation. And one of the main features of pre-trib dispensational millennialism, premillennialism, is hey, we're out of here before it gets really bad, right? And that, that's appealing. And, and if I were voting, like if I could vote which one I wanted, I'd say, yeah, get me out of here, pre-trib, right? And if I'm wrong and it is pre-trib, hallelujah, right? If, I, if it's a secret rapture and we're all, poof, we're gone, great, okay? I'm not going to argue with God on that. I'm going to say, yeah, take me home, right? Um, so if I were voting, I'd vote pre-trib. Uh, I just... I just I'm having a hard time finding it in Scripture. Uh, another, uh, back in Matthew 24, another verse that's used a lot is one will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken, one will be left. Ever heard that story? If you look back in that, in that section of Scripture, and again, this is me growing and learning and, and looking at things in their context. He's talking about how our days today are like the days of Noah. And he says it's going to be just like the days of Noah. He said in the days of Noah, people were marrying and partying and living their life. And he said, but the flood came and took, took people away. Talking about the ungodly who were not ready. In the next verse it says, one will be taken, one will be left. So for you to say that means the secret rapture, what you're saying is this. In one verse it means taken away in judgment. The next verse it means taken away in salvation. And that's just kind of a, you don't see the, I don't see how you can make that stretch based upon the context. I believe when the same, ver, the same words used in two verses, it means the same thing or the same idea. And so, again, I'm still learning. I could be wrong. Hope I'm wrong. One of the, uh, one of the statements I've heard on this that uh, helps me a lot, I, I don't remember where I heard this, and you probably heard it too, um, but a pastor was talking about, you know, pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. Some people believe Jesus will come in the middle of, of the tribulation and raptures, saints. But the pastor talking about pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib. or you know, and, and the pastor finally said, I'm pan-trib, which means I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. So 
And that's what I am. I'm, I'm pan trim. I believe it's all going to pan out in the end. So, yeah. They believe amillennialism. The question was, is there no tribulation in amillennialism? They believe that the imagery of the tribulation is being experienced by us in today's time, in the church age. Uh, post, they believe there is a... Uh, yes, they would say the tribulation is being experienced now. Yeah. But, but, soon, but one day, the gospel will overpower the suffering and bring in a, usher in a golden age. Right, and so that, and that's my point is that this is an in-house debate, and uh, there are going to be people in heaven that have all different views of the millennium, right? Uh, and and so we and we can talk about heaven, and, and God will settle it for us then, right? Um, and He'll probably say something that'll be so simple, we'll be like, oh, how we missed that, but um, but but that time is coming. What I want to do is I want to stop there, and we'll, next time we're together, we'll talk about final judgment. That's going to take a while. And we'll talk about the new heavens and the new earth, how that is ushered in. But hopefully what I helped you to understand tonight is um, there are different views that are under the umbrella of orthodoxy. Okay, And uh, these different views really boil down to what you believe about the millennium and how that fits in the unfolding of the end times uh, scenario. There's a lot more we could say. There are different approaches to the book of Revelation, you know, and, and, and that, that kind of colors your understanding of these different, uh, different events. But go home and study the charts, all right? And uh, read some good books and read your Bible, and we can talk about it as we go. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, okay, so her question was, uh, verses speak of, of God's, children, uh, God's children not being appointed to wrath. And so the, I think what you're asking there is this. How will, if, if we won't undergo God's wrath, then how will we experience suffering during the tribulation period? And that's one of the main arguments for saying Christians won't be here um, for that. Um, but I do think, uh, one way to think about it is this. Um, um, God has poured out his wrath in times past on nations on individuals and and christian people have suffered in the midst of it and so i I think the eternal wrath the eternal hell is we don't have to fear that jesus took it all on the cross but there may be some suffering that we go through not just not just as the bowls of wrath are poured out but as we experience a growing ungodliness as as the antichrist rises up and people begin to follow him and persecution happens it mentions there uh, in the, about the millennial reign, those who were beheaded, right? Those who were beheaded during the tribulation. And, and so, um, so I do believe that Christians, um, you know, if, if that scenario is true, will go through some suffering during the tribulation um, period. And, uh, you know, it, for us to say Christians don't have to worry about suffering... If that were true, we'd have to apologize to the Apostle Paul, right? Because he went through great suffering in, in his life. Now, there is another view. Uh, another view is that Christians will be protected during the tribulation in a way similar to how 
Israel was protected during the plagues of Egypt. So remember when God's pouring out his wrath on Pharaoh and Egypt? Remember Israel was in the land of Goshen? Remember that story? And you know the hail would be falling, crushing the crops of the Egyptians, but the people in Goshen were safe. God had a protection over his people. So some people believe that, that in the tribulation, if Christians are living in the tribulation, uh, then uh, you know, as God's wrath is poured out, there will be a special protection for God's people. So that's, that is a view that, to help. You know, um, Some people believe Christians will go through the, the suffering part of it as the ungodly rise up, but Christ will come get us right before the wrath, the bowls of wrath. That's called the pre-wrath view. So he'll get us out of here. So Christians will go through part of the tribulation, but not all of it. So that's where you get into pre-trib and uh, mid-trib and post-trib and you know, 75% trib. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah, all those different views. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's fascinating, and I want to learn. Um, but the point I've been making in our Bible study class over and over again is God doesn't reveal these things to us to just satisfy our curiosity and make us end-time scholars. There's a purpose. The purpose is that we'll, first of all, be on the right side. Okay, You want to know Jesus as all this unfolds. And secondly, that we'll have an urgency about the mission, that people need to, people need to hear about Jesus and, and hear of his hope and his salvation and so that they're ready for whatever these times bring. And so I, I believe it's supposed to bring about urgency and, and, uh, and a desire to live right in view of the approaching end times. So uh, we don't want to miss the big point. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.